This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. You probably haven't seen this story. It's only appeared a few places, but it really ought to be a bigger story than it is. A New York judge, Karen May Bakdayan, has decided that the time has arrived, her words, not mine, the time has arrived to legalize polygamy. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. How would you respond to someone who says that stories like the growing acceptance of polygamy are just clickbait designed to increase digital traffic or to sell newspapers? (laughs) Well, okay, now there's an interesting way of looking at it. If it's clickbait, and if you think all kinds of people would want to read about this, that it's in some way controversial, and you'd have lots of likes or dislikes or forwards, and it would stir up emotions, then that raises the interesting question of why this very interesting report from Gallup, a big major brand name polling operation, why this report on the rising support for polygamy is getting almost zero coverage in mainstream press. In fact, if you go to Google News or the equivalent and do a search for this study or whatever, you will find out that this is news, but it has already been labeled, quote, conservative news. In other words, it's getting hardly any coverage out at this point outside of conservative news sources and even even worse than conservative religious news services which raises a question where is the coverage i would like our listeners to to think of it through two images that i think i have mentioned in the past but i'll use them again in this context years ago i was involved in a conversation online with some friends of mine in the media and we were talking about the subject of media bias and what sort of connecting links there were between the subjects that inflamed media bias. And I pulled a wisecrack, which I've been quoted now by several of them uh, as having said, and I, I argued that the grand unified theory, you know, the that whole idea that there's some sort of scientific theory that connects everything in the universe, the grand unified theory of media bias can be summed up in the statement, quote, the religious right must lose, unquote. Now, stop and think about many of the issues that come up involved with media bias studies, uh, et cetera, and you'll find that at the heart of it all, usually there's some sort of clash between a kind of moralistic, transcendent truth, religious point of view and some sort of evolving, progressive, emotional point of view. And so you could make a case that if this change is occurring in American life, it would be the conservatives who would view it as a threat, and thus they would be the ones who would want this coverage done, or at at least they would want it done until it, it reaches some tipping point. 
Which brings me to my second image. When I first began working in Washington, D.C., 25, 27 or so years ago, I heard someone ask the question, why do Republicans, once they get to Washington, D.C., why do they change their behavior so much? Why does a senator who runs as a cultural conservative in a state like Tennessee or the Dakotas or Texas or whatever, why do they get to Washington and immediately begin kind of tilting back toward the center, especially on religious, moral, and cultural issues? There was a lot of laughter, and a friend whose name I will not use who worked for a U.S. senator said, well, there are two kinds of Republicans in Washington, D.C., this is back when cars had radios with buttons on that. Do you remember those? Are you old enough to remember radios on oh, dashboards the, with buttons? Well, yeah, the, the, those mechanical presets. Oh, yeah. This is so old that it goes back to that day. He said there are Republicans in Washington for whom NPR is the first button on their radio, and there are those for whom NPR is not the first button on their radio. And everybody laughed, laughed, laughed. And what they meant by that, of course, was if I said that one side of this equation is the religious right can never win, that it can never be correct or right, and then there are people who say national public radio can never be wrong, which meant what they're arguing is that for a large class of Americans, primarily in blue zip code America, national public radio has become a kind of standard of what's cool what it's possible to discuss in polite, informed, intellectual company. And thus, if you go online to, that, to a search engine and you search for NPR, comma, polyamory, not polygamy, but polyamory, you end up with something like two screens of recent coverage of this issue and a lot of, quite frankly, very favorable conversation about what this trend means and how it's like the cutting edge of the sexual revolution, and it, people are beginning to dare to talk about it. And, of course, if they're talking about it on NPR, that means it's mainstream, blue zip code, polite company, academic, intellectual territory. So that's a starting point here. So this very interesting Gallup report hasn't gotten coverage. So what we're talking about in this podcast is not what we see in the secular coverage, mainstream coverage of something, but why we're not seeing the coverage at all. So in a nutshell, what Gallup discovered is very recent, I think fourfold, up to perhaps 20% yeah. of the population Increase in people who were willing to say in the United States that polygamy was morally acceptable. That's correct. But notice the word polyamory. The looser word is not in here. Polygamy basically says formal, legalized relationships that are recognized by the state. Polyamory is talking more about a social trend in sexual behavior. And the crucial part of the Gallup report is toward the bottom. This was written by Frank Newport, 
someone I have known for several decades, and my family has long connections to the Newport family. Um, it's an excellent piece. I would recommend everybody read it. And near the bottom, there is the following. Let me just read this so that people can hear the exact wording. There's a headline, Question Wording Changed in 2011, but it's probably not a factor. I disagree with the probably not a factor bit, by the way. Here's the section. There is also the matter of the wording change Gallup instituted in 2011. In surveys conducted before 2011, the item read polygamy, where one husband has more than one wife at the same time. In 2011, the item was changed to read polygamy when a married person has more than one spouse at the same time, unquote. That wording change coincided with the rise from 7% of Americans who found polygamy acceptable in 2010 to 11 in 2011. But the moral acceptability of polygamy has continued rising over the past nine years using the new wording to today's 20%, suggesting that something more than a wording change is responsible for the increase. I really think that there are at least three things going on here related to this, this wording and it's hinted at by that wording change. And number one is is polygamy, or specifically polyamory. Has that become an LGBTQ issue in the minds of many people? And we're specifically talking then about bisexuality, the B in that equation. Because by its very nature, I mean, I guess you could have polygamy or polyamory with three women or three men or whatever, but that's not what's getting the popular culture attention. That's not what's getting the attention of national public radio, et cetera. It's the issue of whether you could have a thruple with two women and one man or two men and one woman or some other combination of math, or quite frankly, more than three. Could you crank this on up into other types of relationships? So I definitely think the popular culture in major media image, and major media in this case primarily means national public radio, or you could see a lot of other coverage in other elite settings, I think it has become an issue that this is a part of a broader definition of LGBTQ. And obviously bisexuality has its own flag in that. I would also say that some people, because of the references by Scalia and others related to same-sex marriage, that if we have same-sex marriage, eventually we will have polygamy come back. I think that automatically, in many people's minds, means that opposing polygamy means opposing the legal Supreme Court logic of same-sex unions being a recognized state, as opposed to a non-recognized informal state. And so I would say that Gallup, I may even drop Newport a note, I think they should add polyamory to the next survey and define that simply as loose-flowing relationships between three or more people in which they are involved in shared households, shared sexual activity, even shared relationships in terms of the care of their children, but something stopping short of the state wading into the legal standard of marriage and polygamy being somehow equal. And of course, that raises all kinds of questions legally about the history of battles involving the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, at the Supreme Court level and 
American government and Congress, et cetera. And also, frankly, looming in the background are questions about polygamy and multiple marriages within Islam and whether some people might be thinking, well, is it Islamophobic to oppose polygamy? And with that in mind, the main thing I would like Gallup to consider looking at is what happens to the polling when you make a distinction between what I'm going to call blue zip code liberal polyamory plus the old image of polygamy as a kind of red zip code extremism related to radical forms of alternative Mormon life out there in wild communes hidden away in the deserts of the Rocky Mountain West. I'll bet you if you made a distinction between kind of blue polyamory versus red polygamy, I'll bet you you would see even more changes at the level of um, the numbers in these polls. So why do you think the media are not picking up on the Gallup data? Because 20%, from 5 to 20% is, is really rather shocking. It's really big. I mean, you're, you're dealing now with a number, 20%, that's about the size of what the late George Gallup always stressed was the truly traditionally religious portion of the American population, people for whom their religious beliefs and traditional forms of faith were making a daily difference in how they attempted to conduct their lives. There's not that much difference. He used to put that number somewhere between 18 and 22 or something like that. That's not that different from 20% now being in favor of polygamy. And if you asked it as polyamory and made it specifically a part of an LGBTQ question, I'll bet you the number would now go way higher. This Gallup feature, let's see what the date is, June 26, 2020 is when this came out. But it's now getting more attention, and we're seeing you know renewed interest in this poll on Twitter. What, do you think this is the sort of thing that culturally liberal political candidates would like to be asked about going into midterms, or that a during the election primary season for the White House, do you think? that political candidates, Republican or Democrat, would like to be asked questions about what they think of this issue? I think the answer is no. Now, of course, if the poll had come out right now, we might be seeing some additional coverage of this. But the fact that it's gotten some attention on Twitter and the fact that you had this case which drew attention just the other day from the Family Research Council, obviously the Daily Signal is a very conservative news source. You had people asking, a funny thing happened to the Democrats' same-sex marriage bill on its way to the House of the Senate. People actually started reading the legislation. And so here you have a conservative voice, Tony Perkins, linking this issue directly to what mainstream Democrats would not want it linked to, which is the legal status, same-sex marriage, etc. So I, I think it's just politically not something you're supposed to want 
to talk about. Conservatives want to talk about it. Liberals don't want to talk about it. Which of those two groups do you think have the most clout in the elite newsrooms? So, Terry, we have talked about the lack of media coverage of the Gallup poll, but how do you explain virtually no coverage of this New York judge who has said that the time for polygamy legally has come, in her opinion? That's something I'm going to want to do more research on in terms of searching for the name of the judge and everything else to see. But I think it's safe to say that it's not received a burst of coverage in the mainstream press. And I think it's primarily for the reasons that I've just listed, which is who is interested in seeing this language by a judge? Who wants to see it promoted? Who wants to see it argued about in the public square. And at this point in the curve of social change, it's primarily the right, the moral and conservative right, the religious right, so to speak, that wants to see this discussed, and they see it as a form of warning. And what specifically, some of them are going to frame this warning as linking it directly to the Obergefell decision. And some of the things that were said in some of the uh, the opinions related to that decision, which let's go ahead and bring one of those up. I think one of the key questions that some of the people who dissented in a Bergefeld that they raised was the majority opinion at several points always stressed relationships, and they would insert the adjective to, T-W-O. And several people said, why two? Where are you getting the idea that there is, in a secular republic, a moral standard that says relationships of two are acceptable in some other form, other than centuries of common law, male and female you know, unions? Why, why say two? What's the legal, constitutional, logical point that you're making with two? And I think this brings us back to a question I would ask you as a pastor. This may sound totally unrelated, but our mutual friend Rod Dreher would say that it's definitely related. How much do you think has changed in the American public over the last 30 or 40 years on a question that would go something like this? Is sexual activity outside of traditional marriage sinful? How much do you think sex outside of marriage? Now, I didn't say infidelity. I just said sex outside of marriage. How much do you think that has changed? Oh, I mean, it's it, it, leaving out infidelity, which I think probably still ranks pretty highly as that's wrong or shouldn't be done. I don't know if the word sinful would be used. I think uh, leaving out infidelity it's changed probably 100%. I'd say 100 or more. In fact, it's very interesting to look at the polling. I think books have been written on this subject on how much evangelical points of view have changed on this issue within the last generation or two, all the way back in some of James Davison Hunter's very early research from the 80s that led to his book, The Changing Face of Evangelicalism. I believe that was even a question that he asked back in those surveys, and I know others have asked it as well. 
So if evangelicals are having trouble condemning sex outside of marriage, and you're going to take away that standard for behavior. And by the way, among Catholics, for example, whether people believe sex outside of marriage is sinful is almost completely linked to the number of times they go to Mass, whether they go to Mass weekly, monthly, or if it's daily, or if, heaven forbid, if these are even Catholics who still go to confession, you're going to see support for the Church's teachings on that issue. Otherwise, I've seen some sociologists claim that Catholics, non-practicing Catholics, are now to the left of the national average on some of these questions. So I raise that simply to say once the doctrines of the sexual revolution become normal, and you're saying that we don't have the moral standards that we used to have on sexuality, I think a lot of things simply begin to blur. I would also notice that we have at this moment in our history a very sharp rise in the number of single unmarried adults in the United States. And I would say that the odds of someone over the age of 30 and they're, they're single and they're not married, that people in their 30s and 40s in that basic state of life, I think you would find that their views of sexual conduct and sexual behavior are very different from people in that same age group who are married, who have children, who are supporters of traditional views of marriage and sexuality. So I think the, the rising number of people who are single, it doesn't obviously, does not automatically mean they're going to change their beliefs on these things. I'm just saying I think the numbers start to shift. I would also ask that this gets us into this whole idea of what constitutes a relationship. How do you define polyamory? Is cohabitation a part of that? I, I think that's going to end up being a part of a, most definitions of polyamory. You're, you have this relationship and you're all in the same household. You're taking care of each other's children. And you might even have purchased the house together which begins to push the issue of legal status. What about medical insurance? What about the ability to visit a member of your thruple when they're in the hospital? You see all the kinds of issues that were originally linked to same-sex marriage. I think you're going to see people in these national public radio reports and stuff, you're going to see people asking the same basic questions now as we head into this next stage of the sexual revolution. So in that vein, what else is happening in American life that might be linked to this discussion of polygamy and polyamory? You've mentioned a few things. Here. Yeah, I mentioned divorce, and I mentioned an aging population of single adults or divorced adults, people who are kind of back out into the sexual morality marketplace, so to speak. I think the other big thing that listeners really have to start watching for is popular culture. At what point do we begin to see things creep into Netflix and into the edgier parts of American popular culture? I mean, when will something be hinted at, dare I say, in a Disney flick? If we now have same-sex relationships 
occurring in Pixar movies and in movies related to Pixar, at what point do we begin to see hints of bisexual and polyamorous relationships make it into the Marvel Universe? Maybe I've even missed one since I'm not an expert on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. When do we see it make it into Star Trek? When do we see it make it into the parts of our culture that are always considered the bleeding edge of social change? Comedy Central, late night comics, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say the next thing we watch for is popular culture. Well, I'm wondering because these things do have a tendency to gain their their viral state in celebrity culture as well. One might argue that Bruce Jenner's transformation, boy, does that seem like a long time ago, but in, you know, historically about 10 minutes ago may have been kind of the thing that pushed the issue of the transgender rights, so to speak, into the forefront, even though he's, he's hardly a advocate for that kind of radicalism himself politically. Yeah, yeah, that's ironic. He's controversial because he's a Republican. And I'm wondering, you know, when do we see our first open celebrity throuple? Well, you're asking exactly the right question. That's beyond depictions on screen. That's kind of having it get into a to a hero and heroine status, you know, at the level of media. So There you go. That's another question to ask. When do we see it? I also think you can look at the the trendier forms of religion. For all I know, this has already been discussed in the context of, say, Unitarian Universalism, the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, ELCA crowd. Have people begun to talk about blessing? relationships of this kind, I would have to do a search on that. But it would not surprise me one bit if that's being discussed at the Duke Divinity School and in academic settings in New York City and all the places you watch for the first hints of liturgical change, England, other parts of Europe, etc. So popular culture, celebrity culture at the legal level even, and at some point, trendy liturgical level. And if that happens and it's not too close to an election, I think we can expect coverage of that at NPR, adding to the two to three screens of material that exists already. What I'd like to see an enterprising journalist do is track down and answer the question of whether or not we need an Obergefell for polygamy and polyamory, or whether or not Obergefell's just fine and will do the original yeah. one will do. I'm sure there would be a lively debate about that among church state and other thinkers, lawyers, attorneys, professors, etc., public intellectuals. I'm sure that you wouldn't have any trouble kind of ramping up a discussion of that, especially on the conservative side of things. But like I I said earlier, I don't know if the left is ready to talk openly about that, because I think they would see it, that conversation, as a threat to further public acceptance 
of same-sex marriage. Although at this point, I would agree with Roger Ear and others that the issue of same-sex marriage being accepted by the public and even by evangelical young people, etc., I think that's over. That issue is already decided. Obviously, nothing's going to happen a week away from the midterms. Nobody wants to upset the apple cart, and I'm wondering whether or not that might also be the reason that, because these things do tend to get soccer moms a little bit concerned. They'd like their little girls to grow up and find a guy, not two guys. So could that account for some of the media silence? Well, political timing always has to be taken into account. And the fact that the survey, the specific Gallup survey, is two years old. The discussions of it linked to this decision in New York and the discussions linked to Twitter and some other studies that have come out related to this. There's no cutting-edge need to cover this before the election. So, you know, yada, yada, why do we need to cover it, especially if it's not something we want our candidates asked about. Is it time for a religion beat reporter at a major news outlet to start surveying the major Protestant leaders of perhaps Protestant denominations as to where their church plans to stand on these issues? That would be very, very bold. And I'm sure that if a reporter did that, they would immediately be accused of aiding and abetting the religious right. Why is that? Because that's who wants this question asked. I mean, you are the religious right, correct? I mean, that's who would want this story written. I think it's fascinating that it's already been, in the looser context of polyamory, that it's already so commonly discussed at an institution as hallowed and powerful as NPR. I know I keep mentioning NPR, but I would ask our listeners to go to a search engine and just type in NPR, comma, polyamory, and look at the headlines. Look at what pops up. Look at the number of them. Look at the context. Gosh, there was one headline that really should be mentioned, how to reframe jealousy. Here's a big one from 2017. A Cultural Moment for Polyamory. 2022, Bustles Rachel Kranz recounts her first polyamorous relationships. A New Sexual Revolution, Polyamory on the Rise. I'm reading actual headlines, and that's just on the first screen. So think about that. what I said earlier. If you live inside the Washington, D.C. Beltway, and the very first thing you listen to during your commute, driving to work or driving home from work, is National Public Radio. This is in the air that's being breathed by people in think tanks, academia, politics, media, etc. When the timing's right for the left, there'll be a lot more coverage of this. Take my word on that. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate in the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, 
please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.